Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. Role-playing inspiration can come from anywhere, and we use our side quest to explore TV shows, movies, books, and other RPGs that influence our playstyle and storytelling. Whether we draw from intriguing plot points, amazing characters, or, well, you know, just kind of geek out about it, it should be a fun trip, and we're glad you came along for the ride. Here's a message from friends of the show. What up, Nerd Nation? Steve here from the Dads with Nerdy Ambitions podcast, or DNA for short, your go-to podcast for all things nerd culture. You want to know fun facts about the latest movies? Done. Interested in a new hobby? We've got you. Have questions and want to hear from the experts? Say no more. Join me and my crew every week to hear about our latest takes on everything nerdy and go on a few tangents on the Dads with Nerdy Ambitions podcast, where we know it's not just a hobby, it's hereditary. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. So we are, first of all, very happy to welcome friend of the show and, uh, as I said in the pre-show, corporate (laughs) officer John – I mean, sorry, I mean Steve Pugh from the Dads with Nerdy Ambitions podcast. Uh, Steve, welcome. Thanks for popping on tonight to go ahead and help us out. How are you doing? Yeah, no, no worries. I'm glad I was able to make it. Even though your audience can't see it, I am rocking my Waylon yutani Mm-hmm. best for you guys <laughs> this is my official yeah. unofficial tabletop journeys garb that i will wear every time i come on the show we're gonna have to roll that into the swag shop at some point like like I official like like, like a team cham or team wilson uh, pins or something like that like we'll have to figure I, that you out you know what yeah. i actually not before we get into this episode i just want to say the amount of people that have been reaching out to me on my podcast about lee Winika, they keep asking about who does the voice for the southern guy and i'm like oh Listen to the episode. Point yeah, them right. back to the show. Yes, I'm like go. I'm like go. Go to this. Go to this. Go to this. And I have yeah. a bunch of people that have been listening, and they absolutely. First off, you got mad props about your editing. Second, they gave <laughs> uh, mad props to uh, Lee Winika. They loved Champ. So yeah. just to boost your guys' egos a little bit. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. that. He was a pleasure to create, and it wouldn't have worked without the rest of you guys there. Honestly, the mood had to be right. The people he had to play around. I mean. I didn't have a thing to say if it wasn't something that you or Glenn or Mike set up. So nothing great ever happens in a vacuum other than crew of the Montero. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was a gigantic vacuum, a gigantic sucking sound. Uh, Exactly. The rest of us were uh, in that bubble and we did some, (laughs) honestly, some amazing things. One of the finer role-playing experiences of my life. I'm so glad that we actually were able to capture that and yeah. have that so it's, it's like forever like yeah. we put this out it is being broadcast out there somewhere yeah. in space thousands and thousands of years from now someone will have the opportunity to hear what we just did and i think that's okay that's weird pretty awesome that's a weird <laughs> thought <laughs> anyway all that to go ahead and say steve thank you very much for coming yeah, on no 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 
and helping us out. And before we get into tonight's episode, we would be remiss if we did not mention that uh, Dean Stockwell passed away yesterday. Man, just a an actor that I just absolutely loved. I mean, not enough things that you could say about his performances and about kind of how he sort of uh, transcended so many different genres and so many different characters. Um, surely uh, a talent out there that will be missed. Yeah, just wanted to start off by acknowledging that. So Dean Stockwell play it was a hero of mine. Yeah, I mean, obviously we all go back to Quantum Leap to, at some point. Yeah. He was my favorite part of that show. You know, he was the voice that I wanted to have during that show. While Sam was going through all these absurdities, it was kind of him. He was this monolithic figure within that show and within that paradigm that I just thought was awesome. And what a great foil for the unassuming charm that uh, that was the character Sam. So Dean Stockwell, just anytime he was in a scene, he was magnetic. His interrogation scenes in Battlestar Galactica were, wow. They were right. so yeah, right. so strong. Yep, totally agree. So tonight we are going to be talking about the movie Dune, which has just been remade, Denis Villeneuve's uh, newest version of the Dune movie. And so we are going to be talking a lot about changes that Villeneuve made to the screen. We're going to talk a lot about the acting and everything like that too. So this at the top of the show here is going to be your one and only spoiler warning. Be prepared. We will definitely be talking about what is in this movie, undoubtedly what is not in this movie, what will be in the second movie, all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, be prepared spoilers ahead. So Steve, let's kick it to you tonight as friend of the show and a guest for this evening. Tell us a little bit about your history with Frank Herbert's Dune and kind of how you came to this movie. As long as you first tell me of the waters of your homeworld, Usu. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I know that's absolutely horribly cheesy and stupid, but I could not resist. It actually, I didn't get into the whole Dune scene until much later in my life. I actually read it about four or five years ago. Well, I listened to it as an audible because my good friend, he got me and he's like, dude, you need to listen, you read. It's a great. And I was like, fine, I'll finally give into it. I absolutely loved it. I love the idea, the concept of that. There is this product in general. The story that is Dune is so convertible to back. When, when was the book written? 1965. It's relatable to whatever is going on in any scenario. You can change out the Harkonnens. You can change out spice for you know political groups and dilemmas oil stuff like that and it's a well-balanced very well-told story and when i read it i absolutely loved it i read it multiple times listened to it and just went over it and got obsessed with it and when i heard they were remaking the movies i was excited about that too and wanted to make sure i revamped myself with it without going too far into this movie without going bit by bit it wasn't bad but i think they could have done better in certain areas but Mm -hmm. i think it's because i am a fan of the book that it became so i was so passionate about it and my expectations that i didn't get to enjoy the movie the way i wanted to the first time now i do plan on re-watching it because i hear as a fan re-watching it without those expectations you do get to enjoy it more i also fear for the people that have not read the book that it's going to be more confusing than it is enjoyable because Mm. of how the movie was done very well in this sense of it embraced the ideology of what Dune the book is. 
it's very, almost seems like it's ahead of its time. One of the things I know you want to talk about is the composition of everything that goes with it. The music is just yeah. phenomenal. It is, but it is alien. It is very different in this. Yeah. And so that's maybe it's too alien, you know? Yeah. Oh, so for sure. A couple things to go ahead and glom on there for yeah, sure. I know I like went over a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's welcome to Tabletop Journey, Steve. I mean, that's what we do here. <laughs> we glom. I definitely want to go ahead and talk about Hans Zimmer's score. As the resident music geek academic, I can tell you that there are things about this score that I have thoughts and feels about. We'll get to that in a little bit here. But the big thing that I want to go ahead and talk about your when you were talking about the universality of it, right? And how it feels both something that could be in the present, something that happens in the future. It has like ancient, ancient mythological underpinnings, right? The story that is told in Dune with very, very overt acknowledgement and very overt symbology is basically a representation of the story of Agamemnon from like, so like ancient Mesopotamian stories. Like if you look at House Atreides and how their family sigil is the bull's head, right? That is a direct relation to, and of course now I can't recall which one off the top of my head here, but a direct relation to one of the families from that story that is 3,500 years old. So yeah, when you say that it has this sort of omnipresence and this sort of universality to it, it's because this is a story that is very much baked into the mythology of humankind. So this is not a story which which was brand new when Frank Herbert wrote it, right? It has been told a hundred different times. And he in fact told it, he wrapped it in a kind of a veneer of space opera, but it is absolutely a deeply mythological story. So, can I just say, I love when you bring out your history buffness. These <laughs> things. Yeah, right. It is right. pretty cool. You're like, yeah. I'm going to educate you. I want your opinion. Now I'm going to teach you some stuff. I'm going to educate you. Yeah. And now I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I do. So, how about you, Luanika? Talk to us about your history and how you came to the movie. So, I watched the original film when I was very young. So young that it really was lost on me. I'm sorry. <laughs> so young that it was really lost on me other than the actual visual spectacle of it. And seeing yeah. actors that I've seen in other things, Patrick Stewart, whom I had seen in Excalibur, I saw neither of those films in theater, so I don't know which one I had seen first or whatever. A lot of my childhood memories are, are surrounding the film are a bit muddled, to be honest with you. Like, it's, I remember thinking this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. And this is a kid who mm -hmm. had just seen Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. And it was a different thing. Like, I didn't understand what was going on. Like, no clue. I will honestly stand in front of everybody and say I had no clue what was going on. But I knew it was important. My big takeaway from Dune originally was this is an important story that at some point I'm going to have to figure out what was going on. Years later, but not enough years later, I read the book. And I read it. And I read all the words. And it uh -huh. still didn't really make sense to me. Because I'm reading this before I'm even 13 or 14 years old. It's a pretty dense book. As you said, all these themes that go way back. And I remember reading the book and seeing, like, I could think of things that kind of were in the movie, not the movie left out. And I remember having feelings about mm -hmm. that, but the book never really sold it for me because it wasn't the same as I remembered watching the film. And I've only seen the or original Dune film probably three times, though I am very mm -hmm. anxious mm -hmm. to watch it again now that I have a different perspective. 
years later, I watched part of, but I really wasn't into the 2000 Dune retelling that was done as a miniseries or over a few episodes. So I kind of got that. I had a better understanding of Dune from hearing about it, being told about it, other people's treatment of it, yeah. the uh, zeitgeist cliff notes of it, that type of thing. But I never lost my love for that film, even though I didn't watch it that often. When this came out, I said, this is going to be my entry to really kind of get this. I'm going to get new visuals, and I'm going to see some things, and I'm going to have a better take on the story. And I think it absolutely did that for me. My love of Dune has expanded immeasurably thanks to this film. The visuals were just spectacular. Yeah. I'm not going to harp on the score because you're going to do that when you get to your point, and I won't be able to do (laughs) so quite as eloquently other than to quote my kids, that score slaps. I mean, it's just that good. (laughs) (laughs) It did. Right? It did slap. Without a doubt. But what I really loved about this film was every element that I would say, this is what it takes to make a great film, was really there. The casting, there's nobody in this film that I could say didn't do a good job in the role as I would have expected the role to be done. Just based on my, albeit limited, perspective. Somebody who's read the books may have other feelings on that, and I would perfectly accept that, because even though I read the books, I read them as a child. I haven't read them as an adult. I do believe that that makes a difference in the casting. Who wouldn't have followed Gurney into hell in those scenes? Like, I was in my living room. I'm sitting at this very desk, and I jumped up like I was going to run out there. You know, that was how how glorious Brolin was in that role. Oh, Josh, fantastic. I mean, just this movie was great. It did all the things I wanted this movie to do. I was very nervous exceptionally nervous going into this. So I had high hopes. I didn't necessarily have high expectations. It met and beat every one of my expectations. I knew going in that it was going to be a two-parter, so I expected to not get terribly deep into the story. We didn't. But because of that... It ended right about the point where I figured it would, too. Yeah. But what I wanted was some depth to the parts that we got something that the original Dune film clearly did not. And I love some of the changes. I think the way they did the voice was awesome. I mean, Mm -hmm. how do you do that? I mean, obviously Lynch had, the original film had its way. This had a slightly different way. And I thought I was sold on this. The Shields, there was a way in the original films that was very restricted by the technology that was available at the time. But this just looked beautiful. The, the fight scenes, and can I throw a little send-up to my main man, uh, Jason Momoa? Wow. Mm. When he does a fight scene, wow. It's almost tropish. Jason Momoa's in a movie. He's probably going to do a pretty cool fight scene, right? It's almost tropish. Yeah. But damn yeah. if he doesn't make it so exciting to watch every damn time. <laughs> Just every time. Uh, Jason Momoa is the best character with the worst name in all of sci-fi fantasy, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like... <laughs> What, Indiana Jones of the future? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Duncan you know, Idaho. the dog, Indiana. You know, exactly, yeah. Duncan Idaho, not a fabulous name by Frank Herbert. Again, a lot to unpack kind of in that opening salvo there, Luanika, so I, I appreciate that. I love that you are talking about not just the visuals in this one, but the visuals in comparison to the 1984 movie, right? So 
I think that the best quote that I heard about this is that for once, we can honestly say that the book definitely stands on its own, but the book in this case is not better than the movie. And I think that it's because if you think about the 1984 movie in particular, it was very true to the book. And I'm going to call into mind one scene in particular about where the visuals were strict to the book and they didn't work very well. And it was the scene that was very much kind of glossed over in this movie. But the first time that when the emperor first releases his plan to the navigators guild and you get the large mutated whale, like humanoid who's floating in that suspension of spice in the large tank and everything like that. Right. The way it was in the 1984 movie, very, very true to the depiction in the book. And Villeneuve in a – and terrible to film. It looks awful. It looks horrendous, right? And so Villeneuve, instead of resting his laurels on the technology of 2021 and saying, you know what? I can do that same thing, but I can make it look prettier. I'm not going to say better because I don't think he could have made it look better, but he could have made it look prettier, could have made it look maybe more realistic, you know, all that sort of stuff. He could have. Instead, he said, nope, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm going to start at the point that House Atreides meets with the Herald of the Emperor and they announce that they're getting Arrakis. And All that we see at that point is we see representatives of the Navigators Guild at that point. And who do we see? We see the guys with the big black headsets and everything like that come walking out. And who do we see but kind of the Grand Master of the Navigators Guild in their white robes with the gold inlay and that gigantic bubble helmet that's just clouded I thought yeah, that was very cool. Spice. Yeah. I thought that the way that it represented the Navigators Guild in particular and explicitly was so much better than it was in the book. To start your movie with that scene, to start your movie with that presentation of power and pomp and circumstance and the whole nine yards, to start it like that set the entire tone for the movie. It was a fabulous stroke by by Villeneuve. Yeah, and they did some interesting things with who provided certain information. Like, who delivered certain pieces of exposition switched up a bit in the over-narration. Paul Atreides' dream sequences were beautiful in that they were very visual, and what little voice overlay being done by Zendaya was awesome, because it was telling you about this connection and it was clear that this is a dream so this is just the voice in his dreams but it explains why there's a connection when he finally meets her and now you don't need a second bit of exposition about how do i know you i must know you there's no any of that there's no voiceover at that stage when we need to focus on the actors because we've had all these scenes along the way he must have had what four five six different dream sequences yeah. Up to and including just before meeting her. So we had mm-hmm. the connection mm-hmm. with the character. Yeah. In the same way that Paul did. That's amazing. Yeah. Almost before Paul did. Yeah. Almost before that. Paul did. That yeah. is amazing. The voiceover totally. narration being started by her, she's discussing the history of Arrakis, was again a beautiful stroke of genius. It got us to that same point. We were able to be in place with the PCs. 
just because of the way they involved us. Like we knew what they knew when they knew it kind of thing. And that's really good. The plan being revealed in the way it was, we might've gotten a little bit of warning, but we were getting warning as things were happening. Like, oh, he must be doing this. Oh, this is clearly a setup. These kinds of things, these are all happening as we're finding out about them. And I thought that was really well done. Totally agree. I feel like I'm going to be the voice of negativity over here tonight. I don't know if you guys want me on the podcast. It's all right. We we always need one. It's fine. It's fine. I've had it. I absolutely agree on a lot of the things you guys are saying. However, I feel like how they did this movie, it shouldn't have been a two-parter. I feel like to do the way the series, the way they were doing it, it should have been a three. Mm. I feel like they did my boy Oscar Isaac really dirty. They Mm -hmm. did Leto Atreides very, very dirty in this movie. I get there's a time constraint and I totally respect that. And I think they did really well with what their time constraint was, but leaving out the known sacrifice that Leto Leto knew that he was going to be assassinated and yet he still, he went with it. They kind of mentioned it in the beginning and like, do I have a choice? So he's saying, no, do I have a choice? He knows something's going to happen in the book. They set up this whole scene where he's supposed to believe it's Lady Jessica is trying to kill him, and but he can't let her know that he knows because he loves her that much and he knows that she would never betray him and that it's somebody else. In the book, they thought I think they thought it was Gurney that was going to betray him. Yeah, well, I think that they allude to that in the movie. They definitely allude that Gurney... There's yeah. so much sacrifice. There's so much that went in with that where he was teaching Paul like, hey... When after the, you know, when they met with the council, he's like, look, and he pulls him aside in the book and says, hey, I have to pretend that it's your mother that is going for her protection, for your safety and for hers. I cannot let our enemies know that I know it's not her. So I'm going to make sure they think it's that that way she and you can live because I know I'm going to die. And that is such an impactful moment on the development of Paul's character that they just completely negated. And I feel like that's such a huge letdown on the the movie's part. Fair. I do. I enjoyed the movie for what it was. I think it did a lot of things really good, but that was such a significant plot hole that they left out or plot piece that they left out of the puzzle. And it affected me a lot for the rest of the movie because I'm like, whoa, we're going straight to the battle now. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It did accelerate to get to the battle because... That's not the story that they wanted to tell in part one. I hear where you're coming from, Steve. Like, that's really what they wanted to tell was the story of what happens to Paul after the battle. Yeah. What happens after Leto Leto gets killed. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is when he's putting on the suit for the first time. The still suit, yeah. Yeah. And when he's putting on the suit and she's asking him the questions just like they do in the book, there's moments where they're quoting their religious script. It's really things that they would have said in their head. And I don't feel like they brought that over as well as they could have. Like she just mumbles it and they're like, what? And he goes, oh, nothing. Like they wouldn't have just said that. Hmm. It didn't flow. Some of the script. And again, I'm being the negative one over here, though. I really, really did enjoy it. So playing the role of Josh this evening will be Steve Pugh. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Grumpy, grumpy, grumpy. (laughs) I don't think you are being that negative because you come at it from a perspective that I don't have. You read the book. Yeah, right? you, you and, saw and the one with Sting. In, uh... Yeah, and actually Sting was one of my favorite parts of that. I was a big police fan. <laughs> oh. 
Ugh, that cod piece. <laughs> it was terrible. I will say this though. I absolutely love how the concept of the sandworms with the bristly like whale-like teeth. Yes. Yeah. Freaking yep. genius. Oh, another big thing that made me mad. <laughs> the Chris, the Chris knife, when she unsheathes it and she doesn't cut herself on it because a Chris knife is never supposed to be sheathed, not blooded. When it's yeah. take and that's a huge thing too. And that's a thing that goes on further on where he's like, hey, you pull that knife out. You have to draw blood. Yeah. That's yeah. another significant, like, you don't take a life unless you need to moment. See, I didn't even remember mm. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's like huge in the book. Yeah. So that's interesting. So how do they handle that? in the? Because I thought that there was something. No, yeah, they didn't. They didn't. She unsheathes it. And she's like, yeah. do you know what this is? And she goes, it's a Chris knife. And they yeah. go the significance of it. And she does the, like they do in the book, which is kind of funny. And. It's such a random moment that they don't explain it properly. I wonder yeah. if that got edited out for some crazy reason. There may have been some parts that were edited out, but the whole scene where they get to meet all the bigwigs on the planet and they're just being sloppy with the water and all that stuff. And the guy's mm-hmm. soaking it up to go sell it later on. And they're like, no, don't you do that. You give it out for free. Like the politics that the Atreides bring into it. There, again, there's lots of little things that I they left out that are just show the significance of what the yeah. Atreides are trying to improve and how they're mixing up the politics of everything because there's the whole water mafia going on and yeah, the Chris knife it's little things like that, that those significant pieces that get yep. left out. If you didn't read the book really irk you. Well, if you did read the book, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Or like, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. If you read the book. Yeah. And I bet you they would have been able to be there with three films that have been timed to yeah, let Yeah, that's, that's those, the point. Like, um, I really... Yeah. So here's my thought on that, though. I think you're right. I think that Villeneuve had to be, and the writing team had to be very judicious about what oh, they showed absolutely. in this first film. And so here's my question, though. So, like, let's compare uh, Dune to something... Let's compare it to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? To the Fellowship of the Ring. Those three movies and those three books... Do you think that the casual fan who does not know the Dune IP intimately would sit through three movies of Dune? If one of them was basically up until like the end of the battle. Yeah, I know. And then, you know. So we kind of had this discussion between me and David on my show where yeah. like, should they have done this all in one go? Because there is parts that are going to be a little difficult, especially with part two with, you know, Paul. Here's the thing too. Dune itself is pretty much a fan service. You pretty much have to be a fan of Dune to understand what's going on in Dune. Lee Winika, you've seen the 1984. You kind of read yeah. the books. Josh, did you do anything? No. Again, so I'm the new one here on the right? So you can't be in the sci-fi fantasy landscape of 2021 and not know about Dune. And no, it influenced so much everything. kind of like the big major hallmarks. But Dune is one of the few books that I was never able to make it all the way through. And I have seen snippets of the 1984 movie, but I've never sat down and watched the entire thing. Okay. I've never seen the 1984 movie. Yeah. It was not my thing. And so- to kind of answer the yeah. like the question beyond your question, though, you're right in that, like the bit about the Chris knife did not occur to me because that's like a bit of lore that I wasn't familiar with, right? And so I recognized that the Chris knives have ceremonial value, 
and that in general the whole Fremen society have this kind of this other character to them, right? Like when they meet with the Fremen leader and he, and he spits on the ground in front of Leto and Gurney takes it as like offended, he's gonna go ahead and fight him and he's like, no, and Duncan Idaho's the one that says, No, hold on, wait a minute, thank you for sharing your water with us, you know, kind of thing. That's a sign of respect. It's not a sign of disrespect. By the way. And so like yeah. Josh, let me cut you off just briefly and let you get right back into it. Yeah. And I apologize for breaking the rule. For all of our gamers out there, if you want to show the culture of a people, do stuff like that. I learned more yeah. about the Fremen in that one moment of that one scene yeah. than I had watching the entire other movie, having read the book and all that, because I didn't pick up a part of that is memory. 30, 40 years ago, I read it, all that type of stuff. But the reality is I picked it up. It was visual. It was verbal. It was visceral. And it was immediate. That is what we needed to learn about the Fremen. And it was a perfectly constructed scene, a perfectly well done piece of uh, cinema. Go, please continue. Yeah. As someone who was aware of kind of the story of Dune and what happened in Dune and kind of how what the flow of Dune was, but didn't know the specifics, now that you're telling me those specifics, you're absolutely right. They did gloss over them. And so I guess I'm kind of musing about whether or not, you know... The significance? Yeah, like, what am I missing? Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are tons of things. Like, there were so many Easter eggs. Them just signifying the bull's head. Yeah, that is the bull. You didn't know this, but that is the bull that killed their grandfather. Right. And that was a significant thing. And you also didn't know that Lady Jessica absolutely hated that bull. It was up in their dining room. And she said, no, you take that down, put up this portrait of us. Hmm. They actually in the house, there was a bunch of palm trees and stuff that was hidden. Like Lady Jessica knew that somebody she'd gotten all these notes in this botanical garden that was on top of their man, uh, their palace that said, Hey, we set all this stuff up for you. Be prepared. Somebody's going to try to kill you and betray you. She hmm. got all these warnings from the Benny Gesserit. That's totally left out. Hmm. And the more and more I think about it, the more I find moments like, Hey, but if yeah. I put all those plot holes or all those like plot thickeners, all those like, Hey, we're going to be betrayed. And you ended the movie with that final battle scene where they're getting attacked and then going into the desert. And that's where we end where they find yeah. the stuff underneath the helicopter or out of the yep. copter. That would have been a prime spot to end it. Yeah. And then you could yep. still have everything from the desert. And then you have the final with the war and going way back to your first question. When you asked me, could they've done it like Lord of the Rings? I think they could have, would yeah. it had the following? I don't know. Because I feel like this movie, the way they did it, it is very good. It is very amazing. The significance of how they emphasize on water and everything in the beginning, in the first like 15, yeah. 20 minutes of it is you're setting up a movie that is very alien. Like it is the most out there thinking movie, no pun intended, out of the sandbox thinking kind of movie <laughs> since <laughs> Aliens. You know, yeah. it is a different world. They made it unique. They Fifth Element style, you know, like yeah. it was thinking out there, looking abstracted at everything. And they did a really, really good job of that. Yeah. But they could have done better. Yeah. I'm that dad. I think you did yeah. good, kid, but I'm disappointed because I know you could have done better. Did you know you could have been listening to this episode two days ago? That's right. 
because early access to our episodes is only one of the benefits that we offer to our Patreon subscribers. You can get early access to every show, exclusive content, and the opportunity to throw dice with your favorite hosts every month. Right now, we're running a membership drive through the end of November for our first anniversary. If we reach 20 subscribers by that date, we will start a regular live show. And when we get to 25 subscribers, we're going to open our tables for a second Patreon-exclusive game. So if the actual play episodes aren't your thing, you can still join your hosts on the download. For more details, go check www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys, where you can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. And thank you for enjoying the show. When you ask the question, could they have done it like the Lord of the Rings? Yes, I think they could have. Mm -hmm. I think the fear is how badly Peter Jackson then turned around and did The Hobbit. I think The Hobbit, and which is why I love the fact that you asked the questions about Lord of the Rings, because while that was very successful, I think The Hobbit is scaring people off of doing the trilogy now, because mm. quite honestly, that was exceptionally poorly, poorly done. So, for instance, The Hobbit was one book, tried to split it into three, didn't work, did not work. Right. Was never going to work. And what I think the executives in Hollywood missed was the fact that Lord of the Rings was originally one book that somebody told Tolkien, you're never going to sell a book that thick. Mm. You better split it into three parts. And he... Into three parts, yeah. My understanding is it was largely arbitrary where he chose to make the cuts, which is why for many, well, myself at least, the first book, where, Fellowship where book of the Rings, yeah. was a book <laughs> that I didn't particularly care for. Him. It took me about three different times through to finally read the entire trilogy because I really didn't care for Fellowship of the Rings. It was a droner for me. Yeah. Even the film, they had to add scenes that were not never in the book to get some kind of action yeah. in the first or film. Or speed up stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like yep. we're just going to blow right through this. We are not going to do this other thing. You know, the 14,000 pages they spent in the bar or whatever, we're not <laughs> going to do that. They got rid of Tom around. Bombadil. Yeah. 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 I think that that was, while frustrating as a fan, I think it was very, very important to getting the films to flow so that a common audience would get it yeah. and pay money to see it. And then what they yep. did is they kept doing things like more and more features in longer and longer versions for the rest of us. And I uh, yeah. wonder if that's what we will hopefully see from Dune. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's the director's take or how well, he's going to do that, but I would hope. Let me tell you how he's going to do like that. that. Yeah. I can tell you how he's going to do that because it's already been announced how he's going to do that. So not only is there going to be a part two of the Dune movie, also directed by Villeneuve, but Villeneuve is also currently in pre-production and script writing for a series called Dune the Sisterhood, which is a prequel series to this movie all about the Bene Gesserit. So Ah, so that makes me even more mad because they just skipped out a significant scene – the botanical garden is how they set up and set her up, Lady yeah. Jessica. Oh, that's frustrating. Unless that's they so do frustrating. that and then fit that in. Somehow. They can't, though. They got rid of that. They got rid of that whole plot. They got rid of that whole bit. It's not in the movie whatsoever, unless it's in the well, extended deleted. Right. So that, that's what I'm going to say, though, uh, Steve, is that just because they don't acknowledge it in the movie doesn't. So as someone who did not know the intricacies of Dune, but knew Dune as a broad kind of topic and knew kind of like the milestones and everything like that. I did not fully understand 
Lady Jessica's character from the movie. There were questions that I couldn't quite put my finger on about Lady Jessica's character in the movie, right? Because I had no other information to kind of fill in the gaps. And so there was something that wasn't jiving and I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But now like hearing you talk about like the whole plot between her and Leto, where it's like Leto had to sell that it was her that was trying to assassinate and all that sort of stuff. Right. Like, I wonder if that's sort of, and I'm actually like, it's to the point now where it's like, okay, I need to go back and watch it again because I think that that might be what I am missing is kind of the, the you're missing that, stuff that about what makes her character significant. Like the fact that she can control her body to make it, she purposely made Paul because Lita wanted a boy. She could chosen to make her body make a girl, which is what the Bene Gesserit yeah. wanted. I mean, they came right out and said that when she yeah. had to go ahead and deal with the uh, with, with the truth sayer of the emperor. Like, and they, but they just so undersold so much. Like, I cannot emphasize enough. This should have been a three parter, and I will fight and die on that hill. Yeah, because yeah. the you could have put in the the suspense, you could have put in the thriller, and just what you're saying, Lady Jessica's character. You don't understand why she was so significant. What makes her so impactful yeah i mean you definitely get a sense for well so yeah maybe that is it maybe it doesn't she doesn't feel very impactful maybe that's what it is yeah so So. from my perspective and what i do recall from my readings and what i do recall from my early watchings i think filled in those gaps for me so i think josh you had a sense that she wasn't impactful because there just wasn't quite enough on screen whether or not it ended up yeah. on the cutting room floor, whether it was acted against but not specifically discussed, we'll leave that to posterity. Steve, you lament the fact that it's not there because you knew it very specifically and categorically. I had a mm. sense of that information without knowing the specifics. So in my head canon, that filled that all in. So she was very impactful for me because I had this phantom memory, I think is probably a good way to phrase it. <laughs> Yeah. Of what was between the reading and the earlier film, more the reading, I think, when it comes to Lady Jessica than the earlier film. But I had that sense. I just always have, as well as every time they showed the Benny Desert, that was one of my favorite parts about the original film. I Mm. loved the voice they gave, especially um, the little one at the very end who uh, basically closes the original movie. Like she's one of my favorite characters. I love that. I used to do the voice all the time. My mom used to freak out and stop doing the voice. And I would go, yes, but he is Moadine. And she hates that. Boy. Really did. Like it freaked her out. Moadine, That's going in the blooper reel, right? Like his Moadine voice. Please put that in the blooper reel. Oh, genius. I really love that element of it so for me every time that Mo- the benny jesuit were, were mentioned or put on film i was paying attention to it but one of the other things and a point that i wanted to talk about that you had brought up steve is something about dune speaks to and josh you had mentioned it also speaks to a collective consciousness for humanity that goes back to and some of these universal themes that have just always been around in our storytelling in our lore telling and certainly a part of the written word for dune certainly a part of this more so than in the 84 film i really picked up on the theme of resource allocation waste You know, when they mentioned, and they mentioned it several times, if I recall, in this film, that at some point they could have saved Arrakis. They could have 
got water here or brought water up or done all these things. But once they found the spice, they chose not to help these people. Like when that was mentioned, it truly made me think of, of how the Western world has treated the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think by virtue of who and how they casted people in roles, it was very clear but that was the point that the director wanted to drive home. I looked at this. You could have substituted spice for oil. And this was T.S. Eliot fighting in the Middle East. That's what this was to me. And with all those parables, all those things, like I really had this sense of this was a Western power coming to the Middle East, trying to save it from other Western powers that had previously destroyed it all while being set up to lose just so the original Western powers could come back and destroy it all over again. Like I had a strong sense of that. And it was one of those things that made me really sit up and take notice. That's a theme I never would have gotten as a child. It's a theme I probably wouldn't have gotten as, as a young adult. But now that I've spent years in the military I've watched friends go overseas. I've watched friends come back from overseas and I see us having the same arguments that we've been having as a people on this planet for 50 or 60 years, all of my life, plus another life on top of that. And I really see why Herbert wrote this book and what he was driving it. Before we jump talk, T.S. Eliot wasn't a soldier. Did you mean somebody else? I'm sorry. T.S. Lawrence. I was thinking Lawrence of Arabia. And I apologize. Good catch. Yep. Nope. Nope. I only know that because T.S. Eliot is one of my favorite poets. I'm like, uh, yeah. he wasn't, you don't, that's not who you mean. Yeah. Now, I have constant memories that are going back and forth between the movie and the book. So I have to ask this question because mm-hmm. in the book, the Fremen, yep. the great war, they call it the Jihad. Did they mm-hmm. mention that in the movie? I can't they remember. No, not yet. Okay. Not yet. And they may not because yeah. of current culture and everything that has yeah, happened. Sure. They did mention it a lot in the book and yeah. it's like, I was wondering, I was like, ooh, are they going to touch this? And I couldn't remember if they actually said it. But that is a thing. Yeah. And that's one of those things that like, you know, again, when you kind of read about some of the analysis about Dune and some of the misunderstanding about what the plot is really about. I mean, look, the book Dune is a takedown of colonial culture. It absolutely is. Mm -hmm. Paul Atreides is not a heroic character, right? He is written as heroic in a book that is absent of heroicism, I guess is the best way that I can go ahead and put it, right? It's like, if you think about the things that he does, and it's a very critical takedown of colonialism. And so, you know, I think that you're absolutely right when you draw allusions to the Middle East, to the current Middle East, I think that when you look at kind of the way that the British moved into into India and set up the Raj, I mean, if you look at when America went into Vietnam, I mean, a variety of ways that the mis- application of heroicism is portrayed in this movie and portrayed in these characters and everything like that. You kind of have to look at it from that point of view too. It's like, you know, understand what it is that you're looking at, right? I want to draw a clear distinction when we talk about heroicism and idealism and ideals Mm -hmm. and the parallels between this and our real world history. Individuals can be heroic. Sure. Governments are not. Governments are motivated by goals. Goals are not necessarily heroic. They can be altered or maneuvered by good ideals, bad ideals, all those types of things. But the government is not heroic. 
an individual who says, I'm not going to do this anymore because these people that you're asking me to shoot should not be shot and then stands up and takes a stand. It can be a hero. The person who does his job for the sake of his brethren, that can be a hero. But that can also be somebody else's villain. So everything is about perspective. And I'm not mm-hmm. trying to get overly political, but this is a very political film. So yeah. it's hard to talk about this film, honestly, without getting somewhat political. But what I would say is you're not wrong. Paul Atreides is not entirely a heroic figure, but he's representative of colonialism. The House Atreides, they're better than House Harkonnen. But at the end of the day, they didn't sit down and say, you're all free either. Right. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Right. You know, now somebody can say to me, oh, you got to be pragmatic. They know that if they had done that, they they were sent there to get killed anyway. So really, why not just say it? If you know you're going to get dead, you might as well just say it and at least give the bad guys a reason to come and get you. That's a lot you're missing. I agree. I understand where you're coming from, but I feel like this is one of those things that you're significantly missing from the book Mm -hmm. because in the book. It's not so much, hey, we came here, we're not going to free you. It's, hey, we came here, we know we're being set up, and we're allying ourselves with you to restore your planet because Leto was there. His intentions were to bring life and water back to this planet, not so much the spice. So that's a significant thing that is, yes, he knew he was there to do the spice, but he's also like, we can figure out a way to get water on this planet. We need to figure out a way to find the water because they're going out there and finding water. There has to be a way to get water on this. That point is made clear in the movie. I mean, because Leto definitely tries to go ahead and fight that. And what he believes is that the reason why he's being set up and the reason why the Harkonnens are going to are basically given permission, for lack of a better term, to go ahead and attack them to try to forcibly take back Arrakis is because he's doing that, because he's bringing the Fremen in. That's why he thinks that he's on the outs. He's starting to fall on the outs with the Emperor. The way that it's portrayed in the movie, at least, is that he views bringing the Fremen in as the right thing to do and possibly the only way that he's going to be able to stop the Harkonnen from moving back in forcibly and basically enslaving and killing them again. So, It's a good movie. I love everything they did. Like I said, I just, from a reader point of view, I have some beef. The only one thing from a movie watcher point of view that I have major beef with, and I can't figure Mm -hmm. out why they did this, is why did Jason Momoa have to shave his beard? It's the most (laughs) random thing they did. Like, he has a beard throughout the almost entire movie, and then all of a sudden he randomly just does not have a beard, and nothing is said about it whatsoever. Hmm. I actually took that from this perspective, wearing... Well, no, because I guess nope, the you can't do the suit. Nope. Yeah, you can't argue the suit. You can't. He already lived out there for like two weeks with them and was chilling with them. He had a beard yeah. beforehand. And now all of a sudden he doesn't have a beard. <laughs> he looks so weird. I'm like, what the? We're not going to talk about this. We're not going to yeah. touch this. Like, hey, he lost a bet or something. In my headcanon, I went with anybody who's in the army will know when you go to Mop 4, you have to put on your mask or you have to be clean shaven. So it holds through. Now, here we are a week and some change into no shave November and <laughs> it's getting shaggy, but yeah, I think you're right. I think I totally missed that. 
I will fully admit, I have not shaved my beard off, but I did have to trim it back because it was slowly starting to take over my face. But yeah, you're right. Like that was, again, you think about things that like were so inconsequential as I was watching it that Jason Momoa's beard did not feature in my mind. <laughs> However, there was a post on Reddit about that, actually. As you were talking, I was Googling it. <laughs> The title was basically spoilers ahead. Let's talk about Duncan's beard. So I noticed Duncan's beard gets progressively shorter throughout the film with no real explicit reason. The only reason I can think is metaphor. His beard is like sand in an hourglass. When he runs out of beard, he runs out of time. Ooh, that's that's good. That's cool. But also that's so subtly random too. Somebody else comments that maybe they shot the movie in reverse and it's a continuity error. So, I mean, you know, like, you know, <laughs> who knows? Like, it could be, <laughs> it could be uh, any of the above. Yeah, really, that uh, one frankly, goes back know. to our time travel uh, episode. <laughs> exactly. Right. Just, oh, yeah. It's like, oh, exactly. It's like, are we watching Dune or Benjamin Button, right? It's like, that's a, uh, yeah. Now, I know you did want to talk about the score. Oh, I want to talk about the score. Absolutely. And I don't, so it's, man, we, so exactly. Like, I wrote down all these notes to go ahead and talk about. It, and here we are quickly coming up <laughs> on the hour mark. And, uh, I think the only one that I've got to is, yep, Dune the Sisterhood, which was third on the list. So I'm going to skip through the next 15 and go to this score. Okay, so folks that listen to our podcast know, or hopefully know, that my background is in music. My master's is in music. My bachelor's is in music. I am as academically music nerd as you can possibly imagine, right? Like, I mean, for the bulk of my master's degree, I would sit down and write like, you know, 30-page papers on the use of sexuality in 16th century art song and stuff like that. Let's talk about Hans Zimmer's score here. So Hans Zimmer is definitely one of my favorite movie composers of all time. I mean, he is the things that Hans Zimmer has touched, the projects that he has at, that he has done, every movie that he touches is gold. He's done the score for something like 150 films or something like that. I mean, it's an amazing list. He's done Crimson Tide. He did Prince of Egypt. He did Thin Red Line. He did Madagascar. He did The Da Vinci Code. He did Angels and Demons. He did Black Hawk Down. He did Gladiator. He did... Gladiator was amazing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, he did all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. He did The Dark Knight. He Interstellar. Did, so, like, right. I mean, like, you name it. Like, he has done a million things, and they're all fantastic. There were a lot of people that were talking about the score and how Zimmer specifically used sound to punctuate what was going on and specifically how he played a lot with volume where he would have sort of like ethereal atmospheric like when they're in the middle of the desert and they have like this massively ethereal kind of rolling chords that were very kind of almost enigmatic but also very kind of uh, descriptive of the scenery and everything with like you know mountains and mountains of sand and, and miles and miles with no, no kind of major landmarks or anything and so the score is also very flat and then all of a sudden something would happen and inevitably it would be punctuated with this exceptionally exotic sounding normally sung like interjection that were jarring intentionally to go ahead and almost like wake you up from this rolling, expansive, very flat sound that's kind of meant to almost like lull you into like a sense, again, of kind of the expansiveness of the scenery that you're seeing. And then all of a sudden with these huge punctuated sounds with, again, the very exotic, almost almost Middle Eastern sounding again, like you, you talked about this earlier, Lunica, the almost Middle Eastern sounding exotic chant style interjections that were so much louder than everything else going on around it. And that was intentionally 
designed to go ahead and leave you feeling uncomfortable. I think at that point, he's kind of trying to channel Paul Atreides' discomfort, right, with what's going on around him. Like, that Paul Atreides wants to be, well, he's trying to find a way to survive, but he feels like a fish out of water. He hasn't quite become who we know Paul Atreides is going to become. And so he's got this sort of discomfort. Think about like the battle there when he gets challenged or when he has to challenge to the death, right? And so the way that the music is used in that time to go ahead and give this feeling of discomfort was just fantastic. It was amazing the way that he used kind of the soundscape to kind of illustrate that. So the reason why I wanted to let you kind of talk on it, because as I said, you can do so much more eloquently than I, and I don't want to downplay anything you said or come off like a total noob, but (laughs) for me, you know, lots of nice words. Yeah. I, you know, (laughs) these specific words. And I say this with love in my heart from all the times that we have done music together when we were goofing in a band and trying to write songs together and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. You are the only person in the universe who understands my, Ooh, I think it should sound like goobly doobly doo. (laughs) And like you find some way to make that actually like sound cool. I can do the doodly, right? Yeah. And it's exactly what's in my head. I can tell you that from a layman's perspective, the thing that I love about this soundtrack is while it surprises in some of the instrumentation and the directions that it goes or what it does in various moments, those surprises, while they may be brief surprises like, oh, that's neat, they are not surprising, if that makes any sense. And I think that's what I love about this score. That's what I love about Hans Zimmer in general. Looking, Take it, that's, it, got that's, that's Hans Zimmer's style, yeah. It's he surprises you in moments, but the surprise is exactly within the scope of what it should be. Like you just naturally feel like it couldn't be anything else. Like if it were anything else, it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be Hans Zimmer, certainly. And I think that's from a layman who loves music, who loves original scores. I have more original scores than soundtracks in my music collection because I love writing to musical scores. And if you look at my writing list on Amazon, it is more Hans Zimmer than it is anybody else. Sure. If I'm writing an action sequence, occasionally I'll get some Danny Elfman in there, but that's just because mm-hmm. I love the way he does Mission Impossible. Let's talk about some final words here. So, Luanika, final thoughts on Dune the movie, and what are you looking forward to coming up next, and where do you leave this movie here? I've got two final thoughts. One is going to be on the business of movies, and the other is going to be on the film in specific. So on the business of movies, I am exceptionally thankful that they released this film simultaneously on HBO Max and in theaters. And I know there's a lot of conversation and brouhaha over how that goes. My decision now is less about pandemic and more about Mm -hmm. comfort and timing. Convenience, yeah. It is inconvenient to take the time to go to the theater. And that's not me dissing or down, not liking the theater company folks, you know, Bless you for all that work in that industry, for bringing us all these years. My life as an adult with children and a job and an hour commute does not allow for me to go to the theater when I would like to. Right. I still have not seen James Bond, and I won't probably until it comes on streaming. That's a tragedy. It'll be the very first James Bond film I have not seen in theater. I didn't see in theater since 74. 
That's a tragedy. On that me. point, there, let me just say that they have already announced that Dune Two will not be simulcast on HBO; that it will only be available in movies. Yeah, and, and uh, I knew uh, that available in theaters. That's actually where I was yeah. going. My understanding is the simulcast is ending at the end of 2021, and there won't be a lot of movies unless it's considered to be a bad movie that'll be simul released. Yep, which is a shame. I totally agree with you. Which is a shame for me even though I understand the business of it. So this is me saying, I get it. There are going to be few movies I see in theaters. That's not a pandemic response. That's a, there's only 24 hours in a day. There's only seven days in a <laughs> week. As I look at the slate of movies for 2024, I will probably pick three that I'll see in theaters and all the rest will wait till they come on streaming. That's just a reality for me. I hope enough of us pick different three movies so that more movies keep getting made. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a real thing that movie companies need to start thinking about. Yep. Comfort totally and agree. timing is important. That's yep. the business. Dune, I love the movie. I enjoyed the movie. I anxiously awaiting the second of the movies. And I took a lot away from this movie as far as how to do things. We didn't even get into... Some of the scenes, I briefly mentioned how cool Gurney was. This is a movie that has very few player characters and a whole lot of fantastic NPCs. Uh Storytellers take note. Look at these characters as archetypes, as tropes to be used and or subverted, but use them, use them well. A clerical order that works in a similar fashion as the Bene Gesserit would be amazing on a table. How much cooler could you be if you're running a Dark Sun homebrew world to just add that to the game? It didn't even have to be in Dark Sun, but I want to add it. Yep. There's just so much fodder in this film for what we do as hobbyists and hobby enthusiasts. As a fan of Steve's show, and he'll probably speak to it, I can't wait till his co-host and our buddy Dave has some kind of still suit for Dragon Con next year. Oh my year. God, don't give him ideas, that, but that would be I awesome. I just did. I just did. And we all want to see it. In fact, I do. I Dave, do. You, have I a do. St- you have a standing invitation. If you do put together the still suit, we don't do a lot of video, but we are opening up that YouTube channel little by little. When you have the still suit done, please hop on Tabletop Journey so we can see in yep. all the regalia. Yep. I think that would be amazing. Love to have you, Dave. Yep. I can't wait. Totally agree. I'm all in. That's my bit. Steve, I'll go to you for last thoughts for just a second. My thoughts are going to be brief here, right? And so we were kind of joking earlier in our pre-show about, again, kind of my feeling about the movie. I loved it. Um, I did think that it was probably the longest preview for a real movie that I'd ever seen at two and a half hours. It's probably, you know, I really wish that something would have happened. I mean, that's somewhat tongue in cheek. I mean, there is a lot that happens in this and... I do love how they were sort of being a little coy about, oh, well, is there going to be a second part or is there not going to be a second part or anything like that? I thought that Villeneuve was expert in the way that he cut this movie exactly where he wanted to, to make sure that the movie house really didn't have any option other than to go ahead and give him a second part because everybody was going to watch this movie and everyone was going to be like, okay, yeah, but where's the effing rest of it? Like, come on, give us the movie. He painted the movie movie house into a corner and i have to appreciate the masterful stroke that he laid uh, to go ahead and make sure that he got called on for a second movie and 
to your point about the Ben and Jesuit, uh, Luanika, Steve, I hate to, I'm looking forward to the miniseries. I want to see what a series about the Ben and Jesuit would look like. And, and so I'm hoping that it's good. I'm hoping that it's entertaining, but I also hear your concern about that. It might suck. So that's, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's going to suck. Yeah. Or as the voice of negativity over here for my final thoughts, good sir. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to recommend for anybody who hasn't seen it yet or has seen it. Read the book or listen to the audible. The audible does an amazing job. They have multiple voices, voice actors mm-hmm. doing it. So you can because you do miss out on a lot and it does fill in some gaps and it fills in a lot of history, especially for you as a history buff. Yeah, I think you would yeah. enjoy it a little bit more. But my problem, what I'm nervous about with the Benny Jessert show is they, unless they're, they're going to do flashbacks, which at this point, that's just poor writing, yep. is they're, you're missing prime opportunities of how they could have very easily and very tastefully segued the show into the movies. And okay. we'll see what it comes to. I'm not going to be the humbum glum guy because they're obviously know what they're doing out there. They're making the big, beautiful bucks. So we'll see what happens. I did enjoy the movie for what it was. I'm going to give it a 6.5 out of 10. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. But that's because I know the stuff that got left out. And that's what made it mm-hmm. hard for me to thoroughly enjoy the movie. But again, you guys had different experiences. We all, literally all three of us have had zero experience with it and yeah. movies only. And then I'm yep. Vulcan movie. So it's different okay. experiences. Yeah, totally. Yeah. My final, final thought, mm-hmm. John Williams was the best. He's the best out there. He's awesome. He's amazing. <laughs> Moadib disagrees. well since that's how the first movie ends i think we will end on that note for this evening uh steve thank you so very much thank you for letting me very much at the last minute i appreciate you uh you dropping whatever uh whatever you had uh, whatever show thing you were recording earlier today to go ahead and come on our show and much more important so uh give a little shout out here where where can folks listen to uh to that's very ambitions you know if they want to find me they can always find me on audible or apple uh we're on everywhere you listen to podcasts if you want to stalk us we're on instagram and facebook at dna pod as well as on twitter at nerd dna pod and occasionally when i get on twitch at nerd dna podcast cool awesome, awesome. steve thanks so very much for thank popping you so on much here for having me on Luanika, as always thank you for coming in here uh i know i will talk to you Luanika, in a couple days here uh, we're getting ready to go ahead and record another of our two-part uh, D episodes coming up here Ooh, yeah Fun. yeah there we are thank you very much gentlemen appreciate the time as always and thank you everybody out there uh, for listening uh we will talk to you again next time Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.